This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Thursday, June 1st of 2017, it's episode 111. In this episode, Dr. Sarah Lynn Bowman joins us to discuss live-action role-playing and the psychology of play. Plus, our gaming time sinks, Beards and Fear the Con, Overwatch, Bottle Quest, and more. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. I'm Jenny. And I'm Sarah. So we have special guest tonight. It's Dr. Sarah Lynn Bowman, who we have previously worked with on the Game to Grow video series that we've talked about in the past. Sarah, do you want to take a moment to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Sarah Lynn Bowman. I am a LARP scholar and organizer and game designer. And um, I wrote my dissertation on role-playing games of all sorts, virtual, tabletop, and LARP. It's called The Functions of Role-Playing Games, um, and it's available through McFarland Press. But since then, I I do all sorts of of publishing, uh, editorial work, Lately, I've been doing a lot of work in safety and uh, emotional safety in role-playing games. So sort of a jack-of-all-trades. I've been doing a lot of educational role-playing research. I also look into Jungian archetypes. So there is a spiritual component to what I do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm very happy to be on the show. Awesome. Well, we are delighted to have you. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've been wanting to talk to you for a while, actually. And, uh, you know, we're, we're finally... We've managed to get the schedules aligned. <laughs> yeah, it's been great. Yeah, so I've been following some of your work. It's interesting, if very over my head, uh, because you're you're definitely writing at a, a more professional and technical level than kind of your amateur guy who's interested in RPGs, uh, which is great, and I'm delighted that there's any sort of academic interest in it. Uh, that's actually kind of my first question for you. How much academic interest in role-playing games is out there? Well, there's quite a bit. Um, the problem is that a lot of people who are in academia and want to write on RPGs don't have the right advising. So, you know, people in their department don't know what RPGs are, or they may have some familiarity, but don't really fully know what else is out there in the field. So one of the things that um, I spend a lot of time doing with people like Yitamas Harvianen and Evan Torner is trying to sort of collect all the academics that are interested in this stuff um, and get them connected with each other on social media, through generally through Facebook, but also over email, so that they can find mentors um, and they can learn what else is out there in the field. Because there is quite a bit, it's just sort of scattered in a lot of different places. Hmm. We are working on a textbook uh, called Transmedia studies i've got the, the, the they, they changed the name it was called the rpg handbook hmm. um but it's going to be basically a bunch of chapters that sort of talk about tabletop virtual and larp from a variety of different perspectives and sort of weave all those things together so it's sort of an attempt to bridge video game studies with analog game studies as we call what we do nice um, and and there's probably I, I i'm not even sure how many authors but at least 20 different authors on this this book and it's going to press soon so it's it's been a, a labor of love over the last few years i've written a few chapters in it um, and reviewed quite a few other ones but uh, it's edited by jose zagal and uh, sebastian detarding so we're very excited about that but really it's been 
a bit of a struggle trying to get the field together in any sort of cohesive way. And uh, one of the ways that we have approached that is by doing the Living Games Conference here in the U.S., which is a LARP-centric, but we do accept people from all different kinds of role-playing and other sort of associated fields. It's a LARP-centric conference that is uh, deals with educational role-playing, deals with the academic side of things, but also brings in the practical side of things and allows people the opportunity to sample different LARPs. And so we had one in New York City that was run by Shoshana Kessock in 2014, one in uh, Austin where I live last year, and then the next one will be in Boston in 2018. So that's one of the locations where people can go if they're interested in LARP academia. The one that I would suggest the most is the Nordic Conference, which is uh, alternately called different things, but Knutpunkt is sort of the name for it, uh, which means sort of nodal point or meeting place. And uh, that's an international conference. It'll be in Sweden next year. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I, I want to say we're up to something like 30 different countries represented there. I mean, it's extremely international. So it's a it's it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, wow. Which is awesome. So there are places wow. to go. There are also smaller, you know, panels in conferences such as the Popular Culture Association um, and various other places that you can find RPG studies. Um, but we're we're working on building a more unified field. It's just it takes some time. Sure, that's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, role playing itself has only been around since the late seventies. So to have an academic field—that's uh, not yeah. true. Okay, so role playing <laughs> in the form that we know it has only been around since the late seventies, or <laughs> right? Hey, Peter, I have a great idea. Let's make large sweeping assumptions about a Hollywood <laughs> professional on. That sounds great. <laughs> Uh, walked right you, into that you are correct in that. <laughs> you are correct in that Dungeons and Dragons is considered the first role-playing game as we know it, and that's 1974. But really, the term role-playing actually came from Jacob Moreno, who is a um, psychodrama expert in the 1930s. And he was studying um, childhood pretend play, and he was trying to apply it to adult play and particularly um, play in a therapeutic sense. And he's one of the people that kind of came up with group therapy as well. And so there's also improv and all sorts of adjacent types of, of role play. And really it's a human activity that we've been doing since the dawn of time. It just takes different forms. I mean, people are mostly familiar with things like stage acting, but that, which is a form of play. Humans are game-playing machines in a lot of ways. We like to test things out, and we like to enact stories together collaboratively. So um, the genre that we're most comfortable with, that we grew up with, yes, is a fairly new development in, in terms of the leisure activity of the role-playing game, but the activity itself is pretty age-old. It's sort of in our DNA, if you will. Hmm. Wow. Neat. It, yeah, it's interesting no, it's, it's in that we kind of know you through the, the Game to Grow initiative, and you said that the guy who came up with the term was actually looking at using it in a therapeutic context, so there's a little bit of an element of full circle there. That's kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my book covers a lot of different ways in which role-playing is used in professional contexts. So therapy is a really common one, but also military simulations, educational environments, nursing simulations, for example, we 
at the Living Games Conference, uh, the Texas State School of Nursing has an entire simulation lab. And we were able to, to hold our EduLARP conference at this simulation lab and people could take a tour of it. And we were able to bring together people who do all different kinds of role play for different purposes, youth outreach, um, psychology, et cetera, um, literature, and, and introduce them to these simulation folks who, who've been doing role playing in the classroom in their own way, but they don't necessarily have any connection to the leisure activity. So, you know, the, it, is, it is very common for people to, to play out roles in order to learn new things. I mean, we've been, we do it since childhood in childhood pretend play and uh, creation of imaginary friends and imaginary worlds. And a lot of the things that we consider adult creativity really come from uh, the spark that we, most of us have had since we were children. But as we grow older, we're encouraged to snuff out or to redirect into ways that can make money or be, quote unquote, of service to society. Um, and even those things that we do sometimes are looked at as problematic. For example, theater acting was considered very transgressive until recently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, theater actors were considered criminals, you know, in the 19th century or at least associated with, you know, the, the lower echelon of life. So the fact that we as role players have had to deal with struggling to assert that what we do has value is also true of other creative fields. So part of, you know, learning how to navigate as a human being in society who, who has this creative spark is learning how to demonstrate that what you do is valid, is not a threat to the social order, and can benefit people in their adult lives, which I think is, it's great that you have this podcast and you have people on that talk seriously about these topics and their value, because that's, it's really important. So well, we do try. Thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that does bring me back around to one thing that I do want to mention for those of you just joining us, we're going to be focusing on gaming and mental health throughout this whole summer of 2017. It's not going to be every episode, but we're going to be kind of trying to get a lot of different people in to talk about that. Uh, and Sarah is sort of kicking that off for us, which is great. Do have a couple of other things we need to bring up before we continue with this topic, because we're already deep in it and it's great, but I've got to get a couple other mentions in here real quick. <laughs> um, first, Fear the Con and uh, Fear the Charity and Operation Manicorn, as it's apparently been called, and Ridiculous Fake Beards. We have to talk about beards. Yes. Okay. So, Peter, you want to do this? Yeah. So, it's no secret to longtime listeners at this point that we are not an official spinoff, but we rose out of the booter community around the Fear the Boot podcast. All three of the regular hosts here and our previous regular hosts, um, Mike and Brandon, all know each other through that community. One of the hosts of the Fear the Boot podcast was recently diagnosed with stage 3 pancreatic cancer, Pat Roper. So this year, the charity event at Fear the Con is all about trying to raise money for his cancer treatment. And one of the things that we committed to is joining this Operation Manicorn thing that Grant <laughs> previously referenced. What that actually means is if you come to Fear the Con 10... Jenny and I, who are the two hosts that are able to make it, will be there in absolutely ridiculous fake beards. 
Yes. Uh, there, yes. Are, <laughs> there are various other people who will also be doing ridiculous things with beards to help raise money for charity at um, various financial tiers. We'll have all the links that you need to check that out in the show notes. But also, if you're going to be at Fear the Con 10, come and say hi to Jenny and me. We will both be there. and We, would we love will be to very recognizable because we will have yes. the craziest beards there. Yeah. So yes, our goal is to have the most ridiculous beards there, and we're trying to beat out people like Mikey Mason and Dan Krinsky and Zach a number Lorton of others who are and... dying their real beards. But we get to use fake ones because our jobs don't allow us, or, you know, to dye our beards. Or our faces yeah. don't allow us to have beards in the first place. So <laughs> yeah, there is that. Yeah. Yes. So there's that, and I won't be going, but I've got a beard on order, and I will be posting selfies of a ridiculous beard. So good stuff and you know even if you're not going even if you can't donate some prayers for pat and his family are certainly welcome uh they are going through a pretty tough time right now pancreatic cancer is not uh it's the easy sort of cancer to beat yeah yeah in happier news first off overwatch is fun and i finally got to play it hooray yay uh, if, who's your favorite yeah. who's your favorite we want to know orisa good choice excellent choice yeah not quite the best uh, choice, unfortunately. You guys, you guys are going to make good. me acquire this at some point, too, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we've got a number of friends, actually, who play, so mm-hmm. fun stuff. Second thing I want to mention, and this kind of does pull us back to uh, something that Sarah can talk about. We did a really interesting thing in our Fellowship game yesterday that I want to talk about real quick. We did a bottle episode, a very explicit bottle episode. We're in the middle. The way this game works is we're all members of this fellowship uh, who are engaged on an epic quest to go beat a particular adversary. Uh, it's very much the fellowship of the ring versus Sauron, but in kind of a world that you make up on the fly with the, the GM contributing a lot. So we were in the middle of this siege. We'd done a bunch of stuff. And so As a break, what the GM recommended we do, and what we all decided to do, was to do a bottle episode with no mechanics whatsoever and just roleplay. And we actually used rules for a two-page light LARP for this. That was pretty fun. Uh, It's a game called Bottle Quest. And the idea is everybody has a bottle. Uh, It recommends beer, but of course anything non-alcoholic or, you know, very alcoholic, whatever you want. Although I wouldn't recommend hard liquor of the way it works you put uh, labels or stickers with little prompts on the bottle at different depths and as you are drinking and role-playing once you hit that point on the bottle that's the thing you have to do so it, you know it's kind of a, a social game you're trying to maintain a consistent narrative you're you have a scenario set up ahead of time uh, but it's designed to be very universal. I'll link it in the show notes. It's a fun little thing that we had a lot of fun with. And the cool thing about it was it worked really well for that, capturing that, you know, the night before the big battle kind of feel when we were all sitting around getting drunk, you know, going, hey, let's, you know, celebrate life before we all probably die tomorrow. Right. That classic trope. Uh, and it worked really well. So I may be referencing that as we uh, as we continue. Awesome. Interesting. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. And it, it because it was no mechanics other than just drinking, it was very much designed for just straight role playing, none no attempts to 
introduce mechanics at any point, no dice rolling, nothing, just let's tell stories together and role play and have fun together, which was a lot of fun. If you're interested in that sort of concept, there's a a LARP called The Hirelings, a one-shot LARP, where you play an adventuring party before and after a dungeon crawl. Hmm. And the first act is a um, this paladin that's basically interviewing everybody. And of course, they're all totally incompetent in various <laughs> ways. Um, and so it's a job interview. And then they go on the big quest, which is uh, run through a guided meditation. And then they come back and you do act two, which is a group therapy session uh, where <laughs> they're all processing, you know, various issues nice. that came up during this, this, uh, this dungeon call. So it's, it's a really fun take. That yeah, sounds it's, delightful. It's, it's from a, it's from a, a, an anthology called LARPs from the Factory, which is a, a collection of Norwegian uh, LARPs mostly. But uh, they're in a really awesome, short, condensed uh, script form. And there's, I feel like there's like 23 LARPs in this book. So it's definitely worth picking oh, up yeah. lots of different themes and concepts. That sounds great. But that's a, I actually ran it for my uh, pop culture class because huh. I teach humanities, popular culture sometimes. And they just absolutely loved it. And it really sort of uh, got everybody communicating in ways that they don't normally communicate in the classroom. And, you know, the, the, the free flow of creativity was pretty amazing. And yeah, they, they really enjoyed it. So it's a, I, I highly recommend it for first-time LARPers because especially if they have any familiarity with the fantasy genre or with role-playing because they can kind of pick up on the tropes pretty easily. That's great. Um, but it's for, a nice uh, little Two things. First, I will try and link uh, both the hirelings and LARPs from the factory in the show notes if I can find them. And second, uh, the best game I ever played uh, at a convention, specifically Fear of the Con, was in fact uh, Soul Calibur characters in anger management therapy. And so that whole trope of nice. characters in therapy after something immediately sets off my alarms and I'm like, I, I want to play this. That sounds amazing. So... Well, it's interesting because we, I mean, really the dungeon crawl is, is sort of an adolescent fantasy. And I, I don't mean to say that adults can enjoy it because as I've mentioned before, adult pretend play is really valuable. But kind of as we get older and we experience life, you know, there are other sorts of things mm -hmm. that we also want to explore. And, you know, such as relationships um, or such as like, how does... How do these skills that I've learned actually translate to my real life? And so having a parody version of something that we enjoy doing that kind of brings up everyday life is, is pretty interesting. There's, there's actually um, a game mm -hmm. called Papers, a Nordic LARP, uh, <laughs> that is really, really, it's absurdist, but it's also sort of depressing in that it's, it's super fun. It's super frenetic. You're basically this group of office workers that are doing these absurd things like, you know, draw your house on a piece of paper and then pass the paper to the left. And then they put the paper in the shredder and it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. But it, it also kind of is this sort of nihilistic look at office life you know, that actually can pr produce yeah, a lot of bleed, um, which what we can discuss oh, yes. later. I think we're going to talk about bleed later. But basically, bleed is the... The experience of, you know, thoughts or emotions or aspects of, of your life coming in from out of the game into your real life or vice versa. So in this case, for people who 
who work in an office, you know, experiencing this office game where nothing you do really matters at all. And you're only allowed to, you actually stand around a water cooler and you're not allowed to talk about anything of substance. Um, that's, <laughs> that's like built into the game, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, so there are a lot of different uh, LARPs that, that kind of deal with, uh, with, you know, social themes uh, sure, in, in various absolutely. ways. Some are more serious right. than others, obviously. Let's move on real quick and do our Patreon question. Uh, for those of you just joining us, all of our Patreon backers uh, at any level get to submit a list of questions to us, and we roll uh, on a list of our Patreon backers and read off one of their questions at random with no preparation because it's funnier that way. So let me go ahead and roll a die here. <laughs> Ooh, and this is actually from one of our newer uh, Patreon backers, so that's great. This is from Paige Lowe. How much time per week or month or whatever do you guys spend on tabletop? And did it used to be more or less? That last is maybe a little vague, but uh, I can start with this. I... We kind of game every two weeks is sort of the rough estimate. Gameplay is what, Peter? Like three hours for the game you, uh, you and I play every every week-ish. Uh, and then the Fellowship game I just mentioned is probably about two and a half hours. GM prep is probably two hours, maybe three hours on top of that for the uh, weekly D&D game. Okay, so um, I would say, yeah, probably about the same 12 hours a month or so that you spend in the game that we're both in. And then this might be a little controversial, but I would count doing this podcast as doing well, yeah. stuff with tabletop so that adds probably another six hours editing. a month or so yeah all if your you life. are editing all your life <laughs> yeah every Pretty waking much. moment uh jenny <laughs> jenny how much time do you spend on tabletop games our sessions generally last we i i have a weekly monday game and our sessions generally last about one hour of just like playful banter with the lads and then another about three hours of very distracted gaming. I'm pretty sure about, I think, over half of our group has legitimate diagnosed ADHD. We're, we're, so, we're so incredibly distractible. Like, there are a lot of times when we just sort of stop a session... Because we just all know that we're we're not going to get anything done anyway. Because we're all just, like, so incredibly distracted the whole time but yeah i'd say i'd say a good one and a half hours of our sessions are is like actual gaming with progress and um there's another generally about half an hour where we're either arguing about rules to do with the game but mostly arguing about rules that have nothing to do with our game anyway so i wouldn't really count quite count that as as part of the the tabletop session but yeah that's that's my basic uh, tabletop Tom. weekly uh, time spending. Sarah, this has got to be the weirdest answer coming from you because I've seen some of the stuff you post on social media about your gaming, and it's it is not exactly the same, <gasps> is it? <laughs> well, I I mean I do tabletop sometimes. Um, 
our philosophy department had a Ars Magica game for a while, um, and we also did some some one shots, fiasco, and whatnot. Um, but that's sure. been a little bit more sporadic recently. Um, so it's been a couple months since we've gotten together. But yeah, a lot of what I do is LARP. So there are some campaigns that I'm involved with. Currently, I've been playing in a Hidden Parlor campaign, which is a, a type of vampire LARP once a month for the last couple of months. And so that's probably, I don't know, an eight hour commitment once a month. And I just recently got back from Berlin where I ran a couple of LARPs and then participated in a couple of LARPs. So I would say probably total of, well, I mean, four days straight, basically, you know, with, with little breaks in between there, but that was at a convention setting. Um, so yeah, it, it kind of depends on the, I also have a free form group here at the house so that's about eight hours once a month. So it kind of depends on the month. Um, but uh, yeah, and sometimes I have weekend long LARPs uh, where we're in character the entire time. Uh, so that's, oh, wow. that sure. racks up Absolutely. hours as well. <laughs> I'm just still fixated on our philosophy department had an Ars Magica game. I'm just yeah, I'm man. picturing how <laughs> awesome that fiasco game been. seems more appropriate sometimes. <laughs> well, you know. They oh, it's great. They jump in feet first. Uh, awesome. They love Thank it. you. Yeah. And Paige. Oh, uh, we only answered the first part of her question. She wanted also to know if uh, that had increased I, or decreased. I have two kids. Of lives. course, it's decreased. So, oh, that's yes. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's decreased for me too. I used to do a weekly eight-hour-ish game. Yeah, we used to have like full Saturday-long uh sessions in in high school but i i don't have the stamina for that anymore and I, like i'm only 20 how old am i i'm only 23 so like uh i yeah i just don't have the the stamina to do that i just get so tired yep. <laughs> like like sarah i don't i i am in awe that you are able to stay in character over the course of a whole weekend i do not think i could do that I could not do that. <laughs> like that that just absolutely astounds me. That you can that you can I mean, just stay. You basically um yeah, I mean it it helps when you're in a really immersive setting. Mm. Um so for example, I'm going to be flying to Spain in January to take part in a Westworld inspired oh, LARP. Wow. That's really cool. Um, <laughs> and it's it's actually going to be at a, an old Hollywood's kind of Hollywood-ish set. Obviously, it's in Spain, so it's not Hollywood, but like where they filmed a lot of Western movies. Um, so there's going to be like a literal Western town um, that they're, they're that, that'll be the the sort of I don't know if you guys are familiar with with Westworld, yeah, but that's like it's the... a pretty hardcore, intense uh, uh, show on on HBO that is about. It's kind of about a LARP, actually. It's about a a theme park where they have these AIs that are basically your NPCs and people pay a bunch of money to be able to go and do whatever they want um, to these, to these creatures or people, whatever you want to call them. Um, and, you know, the show is really about uh, consciousness and, you know, where it begins and all of that, those normal tropes of, of science fiction. But, uh, you know, spoiler alert, the murder hobo uh, <laughs> is, is very much the way that people behave in this in this theme park, and so it's a it's going to be a very very intense uh, LARP, uh, and it's going to be a three day experience. I'm actually playing in behavior, meaning that I'm going to be in the the lab 
interviewing the different AIs and 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 sort of altering their their psyches uh, as we move along. So you know when you have a really immersive setting like that, physical location, it's easier to stay in character for some people. But not always. I mean, we play LARPs in my living room that are super intense and immersive with no costuming and no setting other than, you know, uh, what we imagine for ourselves. And I mean, tabletop's a lot like that, right? We can create these incredible worlds without mm-hmm. any visual stimuli. So a lot of people, you know, in LARP theory say, think that having an immersive setting is all you need to feel connected. And that's honestly not always true. Sometimes you can be in a very immersive setting and not be very engaged. Um, so a lot of it also depends on your co-players and how strong they are and how well they keep you in play. We call that inter-immersion, how, they, how well they, um, they sort of create spotlight for you or draw you in. To, to I imagine that's very uh, scalable depending on kind of the relative vividness of everybody's imagination too. I know some people have a really easy time picturing stuff and others don't. One of my, I was just going to say, one of my coworkers is extremely left-brained, and he's brilliant, but he himself has admitted that he doesn't have much of an imagination, which sounds like a small private form of hell to me, but, you know, there you go. Everybody's different, and everybody engages differently. I've actually been doing a lot of research on the different types of immersion for this um, textbook that I was referring to uh, earlier, and... Uh, Basically, there are six different categories that I've sort of synthesized. Um, and, you know, some people immerse into the story. Some people immerse into the environment. Some people immerse into the character. Some people immerse into the game mechanics and the strategy. Some people immerse into the activity um, of whatever they're doing. So maybe it's rolling a lot of dice and there's something about that, the flow of that that's really appealing or, you know, in a LARP, maybe it's, um, you know, being a, a blacksmith, I mean, in a Western town, which, you know, there are people that literally have gone to LARPs and just been a blacksmith all weekend long, you know, <laughs> and not killed any monsters or anything, just hanging out, being a blacksmith or being a baker. I, I heard a story recently about somebody who played a baker uh, in a, you know, fantasy town. Anyway, um, and then there's also people who just immerse into the, the social group. So, you know, maybe they just are really interested in hanging out with their friends or maybe they are interested in whatever social interactions are happening in character. But there are lots of different ways that people engage and all of them are valid. Sort of the problems that a lot of groups have is when you have different people with different creative agendas, as they're called, that haven't agreed upon what game they're playing or have have very different ways of approaching how to play. But I don't believe any particular way of, in, of engaging is, is right or wrong. It's just you know, mm. how people play. Sorry to go super deep with theory all the no, time. No, no, this really is why we works. had you on. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, like we can't do that. We can't do that type of theory stuff because we haven't studied it. Exactly. That's why you're here. So, so no, like absolutely. <laughs> that's, that's you so will cool. just have to accept that we're going to stop and take a few moments to digest what you yeah. said. But... That's... <laughs> If, if people are interested in that typology, there's an article on First Person Scholar that I wrote a few months ago that talks about those six categories with reference to LARP. But you could easily talk about it with in terms of tabletop as well. So, you know, that's, okay. that's Googleable. It's pretty um, easy to pull up. I'll be honest. I kind of want to just keep going with this discussion. Uh, I, don't, I don't like doing this, but I think we're going to skip over it. the usual scripture that we 
we do, I will make sure to link the scripture that we had picked out for this episode in the show notes. Why don't we, we just can read do it at the end of the episode? That's probably yeah. better. But Sarah, I, I had a couple of questions for you, and I think some of this relates to what we were just talking about with different types of engagement, possibly. You've mentioned a couple of times Nordic LARP as if this was kind of its own thing. Yes. Okay. Uh, uh, are there debatable. different types? <laughs> <laughs> so Nordic, <laughs> yes, but but they're always debatable Granted. because nerds love to debate about things. <laughs> so okay, we're going to always put these things in from quotes. From the <laughs> background of a guy who knows that LARP is a thing that other weirder role players do, and that's very reductive and very uh-huh. bigoted in its way but it's literally just something i have no experience with and it's i'm viewing yep. this from the outside in and from internet jokes and things like that and i know there's more there but i don't know enough about it to be serious about it so help grant disabuse himself yes, help of me his be regressive a notions <laughs> <laughs> all right well um how many times have you gone and uh, been in a prison for you know 12 to 36 hours and experienced all of the different dynamics of that ending in uh, being executed by a firing squad. I mean, that's what Nordic LARPers do. One of the LARPs that they did is called Capo. Um, They also create, um, there's one that we're running this summer called Just a Little Lovin', which is about the AIDS crisis in the early 80s. And you play out, it's it's a five day experience, but three of those days you actually play out three years in the life of um, the gay community and also related communities um, as they as they experience uh, the HIV crisis spreading through their ranks. So, you know, that's not what we would normally consider a game. In fact, we try to avoid using that language to talk about these kinds of intense experiences. But the LARP can be so much. It can be people hitting each other in the woods with foam swords and, and pretending to be warriors, which is totally awesome and valid. Or it can be the prison LARP. It can be anything basically that you want to, to physically experience. And that, that act of embodiment adds an extra dimension to this whole thing that we get from role playing. Somewhat. It certainly tells me that there are different types. So are you saying that Nordic LARP is not a game so much as an experience? Uh, it depends on the Nordic LARP, um, but there is a, and it depends, right, <laughs> this is why right. it's difficult to, to generalize because there are Nordic LARPs that are being run in the U.S. that are not being run by Nordic people. So um, generally when we, we talk about Nordic LARP, what we're referring to is a community of people that are very interested in avant-garde design, that are very interested in social issues, that are interested in pushing the bounds of what, uh, the theoretical and practical bounds of what LARP can be, and who meet every year at a conference and discuss these things. So it's basically people who are involved in this discussion. And, and there are people who are involved in Nordic LARP who've never been to the conference too, but, but you know, watch the Nordic LARP talks, which are kind of like TED Talks, there's a, a series of books that come out every year. So there's a constant mm. discourse, um, basically. Um, so they're sort of involved in the larger discourse. But at its core, if you read the Nordic LARP book, which I highly recommend, you can get it for free on their website. Um, it's a beautiful coffee table book. Uh, I mean, obviously the PDF is, is free, but uh, beautiful full page pictures and, and whatnot. Um, the way that they kind of define Nordic LARP is that it tends to... This is not true in every case, but 
tends to be about uh, socially realistic topics, not always. In fact, some of the, the more popular Nordic LARPs lately are um, like this, these ones that we ran uh, that are Vampire the Masquerade uh, inspired uh, in Berlin and also um, uh, the Harry Potter-esque uh, College of Wizardry and New World Magiscola LARPs. So those are obviously genre-based. So again, every time you try to define Nordic LARP, there's always uh, exceptions. But uh, they tend to be about socially realistic topics. They tend to be what you see is what you get, meaning that there are very few mechanics, if any at all. You know, if you're having a fight with somebody, you're probably hmm. going to be throwing them to the ground. Hmm. If you're having a romantic interaction with somebody, it's probably going to be physical. Um, now, the degree to which it's physical is something that you negotiate um, together. And I've been working on helping uh, certain communities build consent mechanics, ways to sort of negotiate consent for, for physical play, particularly for communities that come from all over the world and don't always know each other. You know, how do you sort of have an Sure. And different that, cultural that standards, I'm sure, factor yeah. in as well. Absolutely. Uh, and so that that can rankle people who are never want to break character mm -hmm. ever, you know, for three days, for example. And so they're like, why do I have to stop and negotiate consent when, you know, we can just do that intuitively? I'm like, well, because <laughs> unfortunately, consent violations do happen. Um, but anyway, that's that's a, that's a completely different topic. But in general, in these what you see is what you get LARPs, you're, you're physically acting out and everything should look like it does in the world. So if you're playing the Westworld LARP, everything should look like you're on the screen. Like, you know, there shouldn't be anything that's out of place or that, that reminds us of the real mm -hmm. world, quote unquote, real world, or however you want to define that. And uh, they tend to have, you know, social issues embedded into these LARPs. That doesn't mean that there aren't LARPs just for leisure purposes, but um, even stuff like College of Wizardry and Neural Magiscola, these LARPs have some, some pretty serious topical issues that are baked into, you know, social class and um, LGBT stuff that are, you know, kind of told through a metaphoric lens, racism um, told through the metaphoric lens of these, these wizards and werewolves and vampires and whatnot. So the, the design tends to be very socially progressive. But, you know, again, there are all different exceptions to the rules. There are theater LARPs that are like basically black box LARPs is what we call them that are in held in theater spaces that have all this abstract lighting and sound that doesn't hmm. look at all like the real world, mm -hmm. you know? So those are also Nordic LARPs. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's some pretty amazing examples of those as well. So, um, but really when we say Nordic LARP in that context, we mean these are people that are all informed by the same discourse or connected to this community. But um, I don't want to just talk about Nordic LARP because there's a lot of really awesome LARP going on all over the world that, that right. isn't connected to that. In fact, there's probably amazing LARP happening right, you know, in your hometown or nearby that has sort of, you know, come, come up on its own without much interaction with outside LARP communities. And, and those LARPs are totally valid, too. Just because I, I am connected to this particular group of people doesn't mean that I don't very much value uh, any type of play pretend activity, whether it's online role playing or tabletop, you know, traditional role playing games, etc. Mm -hmm. So I just want to make that yeah, clear. I, I guess you could say that things like role playing chat rooms and things like that are just as much LARP because they don't really do much with mechanics. It's just, here's a character, here's a situation, let's just role play it out. The fact that you're not physically interacting is unfortunate but it's just the medium well i wouldn't call that a larp i would call that free form role playing 
although the word freeform also has uh, other meanings if you Google it. Um, like when we talk about freeform LARP, oftentimes it's very structured. Like there's acts and there's like what we call meta techniques. So we might be in an act where in this scene, you and I are going to have an argument and the GM is going to play the bird in your ear that's your sort of devil on your shoulder that's trying to get you to break up with me or whatever, whatever that act theme is. And so that's actually quite structured compared to what you would see in an online role-playing game. So the term freeform itself can mean many things in different contexts. Right. But when I talk about online role-playing, I generally refer to it as virtual. Okay. Um, and I've spent a lot of time doing virtual role-play. That's actually how I started role-playing. So um, I have a lot of love for particularly forum play-by-post mm -hmm. role-play. Yeah, um, I started with MUDs, so that it always kind of yes. comes to mind for me. MUDs and moos and mushes and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. You know? Uh, and what we were talking about right before we started recording as well was whether the SCA qualified. Yeah, I mean, uh, like I said, if we want to very narrowly define role-playing games in terms of Dungeons & Dragons and its antecedents, I guess SCA doesn't because it came before. But really, I mean, if you're talking about LARP as a embodied storytelling or embodying a character it obviously does i mean you're you're playing out of a, a sort of alternate reality um with each other and you're, yeah. you're you you have yeah. personas that have yeah. their own names and their own jobs yeah um i i grew up in the sca like i was born a court okay let's let's bring out the nerd cred here Ugh, all right um i was born on uh, the day of the Feast of the Hare in the Barony of Eldermere in 1993. Awesome. There we go. Yeah. Um, so, like, like, I literally grew up in, in the SCA. It's, it's a huge part of how I grew up. I know a lot of people in the SCA who, like, bristle at the idea that they're being part of a LARP. But, like, there are rules to the combat. Like, quite strict rules and mechanics. And there's rules very specific rules to the fencing to the to the archery there are warfare rules there's penzik every year it's one of the i believe it is the biggest sca event at bare minimum north america probably the world where there is like actual warfare taking place and where and i i remember one particular camping event where like you were talking about the blacksmith earlier, I remember breaking apart pieces of of iron ore to be smelted in this furnace that this guy had made on the spot at a camping event. Like I don't think you can get more LARP yeah. than that. It's I do very much consider the SCA a LARP. I know that uh, both my parents do, but I, I do know a lot of people who sort of bristle at that, and I think it's sort of. Because LARP does have this reputation, it's sort of trying to distance yourself from that. It's like, well, I'm not in character all the time. Well, I'm not like this. I'm not like this. But like, nah, eh, you're splitting hairs. So that, that, <laughs> just, that ties yeah. into, um, I mean, I'm sure we've talked, you've talked a lot on this show about the satanic panic and all the, the, the issues around role-playing games and how people perceive them in the media and whatnot. In a very real way, it's the reason why the show exists in the first place. There you go. Um, I mean... You know, part of the issue is that there is this need for people to justify their own play pretend um, and to distance themselves from people that they perceive as less normative than they are. So it's like I, it's a it's a weird internalized oppression that we that we have 
as geeks, um, where we feel the need to, to you know, rank ourselves. Um, if you if you Google the geek social hierarchy, you'll see that there's this like elaborate ranking system. Mm-hmm. And by the way, in the Nordic countries, LARP reigns supreme. It's not on the bottom, it's at the top. So, you know, there, there's this perception in, in various groups that one person, this third party, is geekier than me. So therefore what I'm doing is okay that I, I really try to distance myself from because I think it's very damaging. I think we all should just celebrate what, what each other do. And I think that a lot of people who who enjoy tabletop would really get into LARP if they had the opportunity. Uh, in fact, I know a lot of people who started in tabletop that ended up you know, LARPing. So I, you know, there's people like Jason Morningstar who is a devoted uh, tabletop uh, designer um, and who now writes LARPs um, constantly. I mean, he's really, really into it. So, um, and he's, you know, started taking part in, in weekend long LARPs and, and getting into that. It, it's the, these divisions that we have uh, in our community are, um, are artificial. Uh, and, and just because somebody enjoys one type over another doesn't mean that it's superior or, or not. So it's something that I really would suggest sort of distancing ourselves from in terms of our language, because it can be quite damaging. Well, and not only that, but one of the parties that you're damaging in that is yourself, yeah. because you're cutting yourself off at the conceptual level from stuff that you might actually enjoy. Now, sometimes if you know yourself really well, that can that can be OK, I suppose, if you're just like, no, I have this horrible social anxiety that's going to just make this traumatic. But if you're not in a situation like that or something else that would kind of cause that kind of acute response, give it a shot. You might find it fun. I got to tell you, you know, most of the LARPers I know have acute social anxiety and LARP LARP helps them so much tremendously Mm -hmm. to deal with that because you have a character and you have a social role when you walk into the game and you don't have to be yourself. I mean, I have tremendous social anxiety. So, you know, LARPing for me is a relief. You know, you ask how I can be in character for three days. Well, what's hard is coming out of character, not because I can't remember who I am or any of those, you know, uh, (laughs) fantasies that people have about LARPing, but more because I have this limited perspective, this limited perspective on reality, and it's a relief. There's less things that I have to think about. I can be extremely focused. I can, you know, only work, be working from a few precepts about what reality is and what my goals are. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, um, I have to return back to myself and the chaos of, of my own mind and my own, you know, life and all the things that I have to do. You know, often, usually at LARPs, we're not on our phones, although there are LARPs that have social media components. We're not plugged into the internet, you know, we're just face to face interacting with each other. Um, which is not the way most of us live our lives these days. So for people who do have social no, anxiety, not since the late 90s at least. <laughs> yeah, I don't even recall a time when I used to do that. So it's sort of a an interesting exercise. It's very good for introverts too, actually, because I, I find a lot of introverts express that they really love LARPing because they can walk into a social space and they have goals and they have directed communication and directed um sort of social interactions and it helps them to open up and it also helps them to present as extroverted because oftentimes they'll play more extroverted characters than than they they are themselves so it's Mm. quite interesting that actually 
bring something up that Grant and I kind of run into gaming with each other that I, I'm not sure exactly how I even phrase this as a question, but I tend to have a very limited dramatic range. I, I tend to play characters that are very much like me, but somewhat exaggerated in some way, or in some cases just ported to a different Peter setting. Peter thinks he's exaggerated. No, he's basically playing himself all the time. Yeah, and as you can hear from Grant's response, I, I get the impression that he finds this irritating. Nah. So, I, what do you do with that? I mean, it's, you know, because it's, it's something that I've never really, I don't know if I just have an unusually strong sense of self, or if I'm just a stick in the mud, or it's a combination of the two, those certainly aren't mutually exclusive. Well, how do you, how deep would you like me to go with that question? <laughs> as deep as you feel like with it, given the time constraints of your evening, I guess? <laughs> So, I mean, I study this. In my book, there's there's sort of a list, of a typology of nine different types of relationships between the character and the player. And what you're describing sounds very much like the doppelganger self. You know, you're basically playing yourself in a fictional atmosphere, and that's totally fine. A lot of people don't have that kind of range um, to play lots of different types of characters. And that's just the way that they, that they immerse. And... Then there's sort of a, a several different types of, of characters that are uh, slightly different. So maybe you are playing yourself devoid of empathy, and that's like what, what I call the devoid self, or playing yourself as if you were raised somewhere else, or as if you had superpowers, and that would be like the augmented self. Um, so there are sort of degrees of closeness to the way you identify in your primary self. And when I say primary self, uh, I mean the ego that we use when we say I. So the I that is giving this interview is my primary self, but I don't really perceive myself as unified in the same way that, that other people do. I think that we have lots of fragments of consciousness um, and of identity, and different people are more fragmented than others. So for people who are really, really good at, at trying on different characters, they, their identities are more fluid um, and they have access to more range of these fragments. But that doesn't make them better role players per se. It just, it's just the way that they experience reality, I guess, is the best way to put it. So somebody like Robin Williams is a great example. I mean, this is a guy who does not have a unified sense of self and he's jumping uh, you know, was jumping between, if you ever watch a stand-up, uh, little fragments of, of psyche, basically, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, from moment to moment. <laughs> and the thing is, though, you know, you could take an improv class and actually tap into more of these aspects of creativity. But I, I honestly think there are just some people that, that are uh, more flexible in that regard uh, than others. I tend to have, I have about four or five sort of stock character types that I will bring out. And sometimes I'll play uh, combinations of those things uh, in different settings. But um, I have more range than that, but they're sort of resting points that are very comfortable to me. They're energies that I'm used to working with. Um, and that also I consider parts of myself, even if I'm playing them in different fictional settings with different personalities or backgrounds, they kind of have the same essence, if that makes sense. Um, so if you're interested in, hmm. in those kinds of ideas, there's, uh, there's a theory called psychosynthesis, which is a, a psychoanalytic offshoot uh, that talks about 
you know, identifying your sub personalities basically and getting them to communicate with each other. So this is actually a therapeutic technique. And Roberto Asagioli, who came up with this theory, really believed that everybody has these kind of archetypes basically that they're working with. There's also uh, dissociative identity, uh, which is the notion that certain people have a fragmented psyche. If you look at psychoanalysis in general, the fragmented psyche is just part of everybody. You know, you have the id and the ego and the superego, which some people can choose to agree with whether that exists or not. But basically the idea is that this sense of unified self that we perceive when we say I is not actually the case. It's, there's a lot more going on in our unconscious than we choose to admit. So I'm from a Jungian perspective. I do enjoy Freud, but whereas I, I kind of look at these um, sort of archetypal essences because I find them very interesting from a uh, role-playing perspective, meaning that like when we're playing the wizard, we're tapping into something that is age old and you know, part of our language structure is part of the way our mind works. We recognize the wise old man as an archetype. We just, we do. You don't have to necessarily explain to a five-year-old who Gandalf is. Um, and so oftentimes when we're playing characters, yes, we're playing these personalities and sometimes they have these little quirks that are similar to our world or tied into whatever fictional world we're playing, but they're often also connected to these deeper archetypes. So I do a lot of research into Jungian theory and how it connects to role-playing games. Um, but the idea behind dissociation, who, by the way, Jung studied under Pierre Genet, who uh, came up with this concept of dissociation, is that basically we have, we have this, these fragments of psyche and they only really become noticeable in people who have been traumatized um, because then they become really obvious when somebody is switching in and out of, of different personalities. And, and that's you know, the, the typical sort of multiple personality disorder concept. But I, I really think that um, that in a perfectly healthy psyche, if however we define that, um, I'm gonna put healthy in quotes, but for people who are not in therapy for that sort of thing, uh, we also can have fragmented psyches and that role-playing characters are sort of versions of that. And so perhaps, you know, for people who don't have lots of characters in their heads, maybe they're less fragmented than others, but this notion of the unified self is a myth. There's my answer. All right. That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> Just sitting here thinking like, what other assumptions can I float in front of Sarah to be proven wrong on? <laughs> and what other questions can I ask her to get those kind of interesting answers? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying anybody's wrong. A lot of this, these concepts are heavily disputed. There are plenty of my fellow scholars that disagree with me on some of the basic precepts that I've just explained, but that's really the way I perceive, perceive what we're doing when we're role-playing is we're accessing hmm. these different aspects, but yes, please. Yeah. And that sort of makes, that sort of makes sense. Cause like, I know that I, I feel like a very different person, like when I'm at work versus when I'm at the role-playing Absolutely. table. Like, like I even have my professional voice where I talk like this all the time and I sound a little bit like a telemarketer, but that that's just how I talk at work. And then I have the, the voice that I use when I'm, when I'm podcasting, which is very, very similar to, um, my, my regular speaking voice. I just enunciate a little bit more, except for that last word, which I totally fumbled and I should probably do again. Um, <laughs> but I'm not going to, but, uh, yeah, so no, that definitely does make sense. And I think 
I don't know what I think. I'm just going to let that trail off there. So, Sorry about that, Grant. That's going to be a heck to edit. <laughs> so uh, there's a, a theorist uh, in sociology named Irving Goffman who uh, basically said that we're always, it's kind of the, the Shakespearean, all the world's a stage and we are merely players taken literally that every social interaction is a stage and we're always performing a role. So all of the things that you just described are social roles and there's certain expectations when we step into certain social stages of how we're supposed to perform. And when we defy those expectations, there can be major social consequences. Um, everybody plays multiple roles in life, but role players are more aware of it because we conscientiously step out of ourselves and into this fictional world. It's, uh, we're, we're much more aware of that, that whole process. And so when we transition back, we're like, now, wait a minute, what just happened? It provides this sort of space for reflection. Hmm. So I, I've been wanting to ask you about a couple of specific terms. And this sounds sort of akin to what's called alibi. Am I right on that? That LARP in particular lets us sort of renegotiate how we interact with each other, at least for the duration of that LARP. And because we're in kind of stepping into those roles of characters, the fact that we are doing things that the character is doing instead of what I would normally do as myself, at least potentially, is sort of okay relies on the fact that we know it's a different social interaction and, and to some degree performant. Am I right on that? Yes. Basically, what there's this term called the magic circle, which we should probably cover first. Okay. Um, which is any game, basically, and this is, again, a term that's disputed, but whatever, we're going to use it. The magic circle is this notion that whenever you step into a game, whether it's a role-playing game or poker or whatever, you are adopting the rules of that reality of that game for mm. that limited amount of time. And so... In the case of a role-playing game, you are adopting a set of fictional circumstances and a fictional persona. Even if that persona is very similar to yourself, you're still in a fictional reality. Uh, even if it, even if it happens to be we're role-playing what it's like to be in this podcast, and it's a role-played podcast, so that would still be a fictional version of these events. Um, and so what that does is it affords you uh, a certain uh, lack of responsibility for your actions um, because it's not quote unquote you that's taking the actions. And again, I'm always going to put you in quotes because this notion of an ego, uh, a unified sense of ego is, is, um, is up for debate. Uh, but um, certainly the me that is acting within the magic circle is acting under the assumption that what I'm doing is fictional. So I can take chances that I wouldn't normally take. I can make mistakes that I wouldn't normally make. I can say things that are outrageous. I can um, express myself in ways that would be normally socially irresponsible or problematic or, or risky. Um, and the idea behind alibi is, oh, it wasn't me, it was my character. You know, somebody who has an alibi for a crime can say, I wasn't there, right? Mm -hmm. And so alibi uh, is sort of a, uh, what we call kind of a polite fiction. Yes, it wasn't you, it was your character, but certainly you were the one that was <laughs> uh, performing your character. So the degree to which it's you and isn't you uh, is open to debate. Right, because um, I know we've talked a lot on this podcast about people who use the, oh, I'm just playing my character excuse 
as an excuse for acting out antisocial behavior or problematic behavior in some way, being abusive to others at the table, that sort of thing. I mean, I think we're all familiar with people who have acted that way or regularly use that as an excuse. Absolutely. And I, I find it extremely problematic. I've been focusing a lot on emotional safety in role-playing spaces mm-hmm. and how to reinforce that players are more important than games. And so no matter what kind of character you're playing, you don't have a, an excuse to, to harm someone else. And so the question then becomes, well, how do I know if I'm, what I'm doing is, is harmful within this magic circle? And so we've developed a bunch of techniques to check in with people and to do what we call calibrating. So kind of um, getting everybody on the same page as to whether something is comfortable or not. Mm. Um, You know, using the X card, for example, to take out certain content that's uncomfortable, like sexual abuse, let's say, Mm -hmm. or using the OK check-in signal, which is a way to flash like an OK symbol at somebody and they can do thumbs up or thumbs down or so-so and let you know out of character how they're feeling about a scene in a way that isn't disruptive to the scene. So there are ways to, to kind of indicate that the play group cares more about the player's emotional state than the cohesion of the game that, that can cut down on a lot of that behavior. Of course, some people are going to behave that way anyway, but your play group and the, the norms that you establish in terms of what you're going to put up with in terms of how people use alibi, perhaps in ways that, are socially irresponsible, sort of dictates the way that how comfortable people are going to feel opening up and being creative in that space. And what we're finding is that communities that have more safety, oftentimes people feel more comfortable taking risks and having edgier play because they know that their co-players will hopefully communicate with them if something is uncomfortable. And so they feel like they have more of a safety net to push push harder, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's interesting. This, um, as you've been talking about this phenomenon, it's it's kind of like this is the same thing that makes people feel okay with taking potentially life-threatening heroic risks in games, too. Absolutely. Because they know it's fictional and it won't follow them out of the game. Yeah. Now, of yeah. course, fo- things that follow out of the game, that brings us around to the topic of bleed, which I know you've done a lot of work on as well. Yeah. So bleed is basically, if we're saying that, you know, it's not me, it's the character. To me, bleed is sort of the opposite of that. It's saying, it's acknowledging that certain contents spill over into, from one frame to another. So if I'm in the role-playing frame and I'm having this awesome romance, which is one of my favorite things to do in role-playing games is have romantic interactions. And I I start having feelings for that player, not the character, um, based on these intense experiences, then I am experiencing bleed. And that's a really common one that happens really a lot. In fact, there's some, you know, couples that refuse to allow their their partners to experience romantic role playing for that reason, because of the fear of the bleed. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm not saying what other people should do with their lives. I'm just saying what I enjoy. There's a certain intensity that comes from experiencing bleed of all different kinds. What, you know, uh, I sometimes play in this zombie apocalypse LARP called Dystopia Rising, 
where, you know, you're, it's like I said, sort of 24 hour immersion for the whole weekend and you're in the woods in the dark being, you know, terrified out of your mind by zombies coming out at you. And so you're, they're using real fear in that situation to create an emotional response that helps you feel more in character. Okay. And so that's, that's a form of bleed is, is using, using real emotions, real physical states. Um, there's a LARP called Legion, which is uh, in the Czech Republic. That is about um, a, basically a group of soldiers trudging through the Siberian uh, woods trying to get home. And I mean, these are people that are literally in the dead of winter with all of their gear effectively reliving what these soldiers experienced years ago. And that game, you know, you, you don't have to pretend to be hungry. You don't have to pretend to be tired. You don't have to pretend to be cold because you are, right? So that's also a form of bleed is when you put people through the physical state that makes them feel immersed into that, to that reality. But it doesn't always have to be that way. I mean, I can experience bleed, like I said, in a freeform game in my living room where I don't have any costuming on, but the, the game is sufficiently intense and my co-players are really bringing it. So there's plenty of bleed in tabletop, for example, just because you're not physically enacting something doesn't mean that, that you don't feel bleed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think probably the most recent example that I can point to is um, actually in your game, Grant, when we went and rescued the that group of slaves from those uh, grungs, they were called, like the, the frog yeah. people. And you described how they were using like this toxic food that kind of slowly saps away who these people are and just makes them into these kind of docile um, Haitian voodoo style zombie kind of characters. And the anger at that definitely came out of the game. (laughs) I'm sorry. I think Uh, no. Or you're welcome. Yeah, more. That was more of a you're welcome. It was like I was mad at these little frog monsters and i very much wanted to get these people away from them and yeah yeah that's a great example and you know usually that's tapping into something either very primal that we experience and or something that ties into real life frustrations you know things like human trafficking or slavery the history of slavery in our country i mean just because we're using a fantasy lens you kind of know what we're actually talking about here, you know, and um, and these are these are real issues that face real people and, and they, they can activate us. Yeah. I find it more disturbing when people don't feel bleed, honestly, in those situations. Yeah. I find hmm. it more disturbing when they're able to just laugh it off and just be like, oh, well, this is just a game. Or when I experience the bystander effect where um, I'm in the middle of a LARP, say, and something really horrific is happening, but everybody's just standing around and like, oh, whatever, you know. Either they're not engaged because it's a LARP, it's a game, or they're allowing it to happen because of, you know, peer pressure. Both of those things are equally terrifying to me, (laughs) in a way. No, that's fair. Um, It's a good point. Because that's what happens in real life, you know. Um, Horrible things happen. People, I don't even want to get into details, but things can happen just in plain sight that nobody does anything about. Because people are like, well, why should I risk my neck? Or somebody else will take care of it. Yeah. yeah, there was a recent example where that went horribly wrong in Portland that's been all over the news in the last couple of weeks. So it's, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so horrific stuff that you would think would be confined to a game actually does happen in real life every once yeah, in a while. So, I mean, in that in that yep. case, like, I really feel that role playing can be a, a, a when 
when people treat it seriously, um, and you can still, by the way, treat a comedy game seriously. Um, you're just choosing to take oh, the, yeah. the content seriously. Um, I think that it can be really transformative when you can have that that visceral reaction of these people are being turned into mind-controlled slaves. And I, I feel very angry about that and I want to do something about it. That's a powerful experience. That's a form of activism, really. Like it's, it's a, it's, you're activated in a way that you weren't before. And so a lot of the, the LARPs, um, the Nordic LARPs, for example, that are, that are based on real world issues um, are intending to, to provoke that kind of response where you feel emotionally attached all of a sudden to the AIDS crisis, even if you haven't had any personal experience with it, because you've, you haven't lived out these people's lives and you can't claim that you have because you haven't, but you've lived out some semblance of what it might've been like to experience grief, what it might've been like to experience loss or the shock of disease in this, you know, <laughs> in this safe atmosphere. Uh, and, and so maybe you have even a smidgen of an understanding, at least a, a, a hopefully some empathy that can be created where you can feel for people who are undergoing that thing. It occurs to me that that C.S. Lewis quote that we always use is talking about bleed. Uh, the value of myth is that it takes all the things you know and restores to them the rich significance which has been hidden by the veil of familiarity. It's from his uh, review of Lord of the Rings, yeah. I believe. Yeah, I was going to say it sounds like he's just parroting Tolkien as usual there, but um, <laughs> but that that is a, it is a beautiful way of I, I love Lewis, but yeah, he 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 was converted <laughs> in more ways than one. But yeah, I mean, like Tolkien. I don't know if you guys are familiar with on fairy stories, but it's this mm -hmm. article that, that Tolkien wrote about fantasy. And it was all about this, this sort of re-enchantment of everyday life, um, as it's called. There's a book by Michael Saylor about that called As If, which is like a lot of these genres that popped up that we play in nowadays um, that, were, that were fictional genres at the time, uh, are, are, were partially a response to the, the mundane everyday industrialization that was going on and just, you know, stripping us of the things that made life enchanting. Um, and so, you know, for Tolkien, experiencing these fantasy worlds allowed us to have a, a sense of, of re-enchantment, a sense of consolation, particularly in these epic battles between good and evil, which Lewis also uh, very much used uh, in his writing. There was this group called the Oxford Group um, at the time that were very into this concept of moral rearmament, you know, this notion that you could somehow be bolstered in your morality. And for Tolkien, fantasy was a way to do that. Taking things that normally make us feel very helpless and putting us in a context where we can actually do something about them, even if it's in this fantasy setting, that's, that's powerful stuff sort of like self-defense classes like this entire time th that we've been talking about bleed i cannot stop thinking about the self-defense my school my high school it had a lot of problems but one of the things it did right was it made self-defense classes a requirement to pass grade nine uh, wow class. that's incredible yeah i didn't actually like the teacher who made that part of the curriculum but that was one of the few things that she and i actually agreed on as a good thing so like so much of that self-defense class, I think could be seen sort of as a LARP because we did have to 
at the very end of the class, we had to essentially, quote unquote, be attacked by this guy in like a protective bodysuit. And we just had to go completely all out and beat this guy senseless, but in a, a very safe environment. Like he had a huge, just like, like, like he looked like the Michelin man. He he was just like padded head to toe, but um, sure, like those those protective suits, almost like what they use for training police dogs and the like. Yes, almost exactly like those ones. That I, I think it may have been the same type of thing. I actually know one girl who actually broke his faceplate that was covering his face, and they had to take a break wow, so he could get a new one. Wow! I experienced two instances of bleed there. One, we all had to sit in a circle and mm. watch this happen. Watching it was very uncomfortable. Yeah. I felt incredibly just like intimidated the entire time watching. And then there was a certain amount of just at the very least adrenaline bleed. Like after I beat the guy up, um, I was still very pumped. And like my like even just talking about it now, my knuckles are tingling in like that the, the twitchy way, like the I'm ready to give him the old one too. I'm I'm ready to punch right. something. And I was like yeah, that for that the rest fight, of the whole fight or day. flight back. Yeah, it was definitely and I feel like that bleed was very important because I will now hopefully have some sort of sense of what it's like to it should should I be attacked, I should have some sense of what to do in that situation. And I think you can get a similar sort of effect from LARP. Yeah. Just absolutely the, the ability to the ability to just like visualize and, and know what's gonna and know what should happen in a situation. Yeah, I mean, we were talking earlier about simulation, and it sounds like that's what you experienced was a simulation, uh, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. basically a LARP. I mean, I, to me, there there isn't that yeah. much of a distinction. There isn't really a distinction other than genre, basically, and, and setting. Like in this in this case, yeah. you were in an educational setting. But that sounds very much like the Saturday Night Mod at a lot of fantasy LARPs, you know, <laughs> just a bunch of people going to town on somebody <laughs> in, in a bunch of padded armor. I mean... Uh, these people doing that every weekend, you know, mm-hmm. and I experienced similar bleed that you described when I witness it because I'm a pacifist and I am very, I can easily be very triggered by, by acts of violence, even pretend violence. And sometimes, especially if I catch things, uh, out of the corner of my eye that are, um, very quick, violent actions, it very much can make me feel like, oh, wow, I'm in a real situation, which of course is not the intention of the people that are that are playing. But uh, yeah, that is a form of bleed. Absolutely. And I've been thinking a lot about, I mean, I always think a lot about bleed, obviously, but like, I've been thinking a lot about bleed in terms of not just being about role playing to real life, but being from one frame of, of life to another frame of life. So, you know, for example, if I'm dreaming about doing things at work, like grading or whatever, that's kind of a form of bleed. Or if I, you know, have a certain relationship dynamic with one person, and then I start behaving in that way towards another or in a different setting, that's kind of a form of bleed. So, you know, the fact that we have words for it in in role playing, again, it kind of demonstrates something that exists normally in that we have these different frames of social reality where we're performing these different roles. We're just not always aware of it. And so somebody, I, where did I hear this recently? Oh, it was so, I forget where I heard this, but it's, it's, um, it's kind of sad, but it basically talks about how we have to put up so much shielding in, in order to go out and be in the world that a lot of people don't take it off when they get home. I think I was, it was in reference to attachment theory and, and relationships. Uh, this is psychology, but 
basically that there are certain people that even when they're in the frame of, of home where they're supposed to be more themselves or more vulnerable. Oh, I think it was probably The Power of Vulnerability by Brene Brown, uh, which I highly recommend, by the way. Really incredible lecture series. Um, you can also see her TED Talks. But she was talking about how, you know, when people get home, it's too much work to take all of that armor off and to just to, to be open, to be vulnerable. And so oftentimes in, in that in that way, that's a form of lead, right? You're, you're, you're not de-rolling, as we would call it, from everyday life, from your work self, for example, or from being out in the world where you have to be very protected. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's another concept to think about is de-rolling. To what degree do we take off one identity and put on another? And one of the things that I've been studying is how to ritualize that process, how to make it more clear that I am, you know, one of the things we did in End of the Line, which is a a Nordic vampire LARP uh, that we were running in Berlin, is when we have uh, the the big circle, when people are, are transitioning into character, we had them each one by one say, I am Sarah, but I will be Carolina. So this is sort of a ritualized way of becoming the role. And then when we were done with the LARP, we did the same thing. I, I was Carolina, but now I am Sarah. Um, so this is a, a way to make it very distinct, those differences between the frames. And I'm also very interested in debriefing, which is a form of, of sort of ritualized sharing where people talk seriously about their experiences, which actually, you know, this podcast is an example of debriefing in a way you know, having structured conversations about experiences that you have in a, in a role play setting in a serious way, you know, not just war stories, not that there's anything wrong with war stories, I think they're fun, but, um, but actually processing the emotional content and taking seriously the act of role playing, it's pretty powerful. And I, I think it's awesome that that's what you choose to do with your time. Awesome for you guys. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So we could keep this going all night, probably. But we've been going a while. I have a lot more questions, but I I fear we are out of time, which stinks, honestly. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. This has been fascinating, very enlightening. Absolutely. Uh, we have a lot of things to link in the show notes, that's for sure, which is great because we like giving people references. Where, If somebody wants to find you or your work... Is there a social media presence you're interested in sharing, a website, anything like that? Sure. I mean, you can always find me on Facebook. I'm very active there. And then I also have a website, sarahlinbowman.com. Okay. Well, Dr. Sarah Lynn Bowman, expert in LARP, role-playing studies, and a whole lot more. Thank you very much for joining us. It has been a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We'll have to have you back so we can ask you the rest of our questions at some point. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. After I listen to this two or three times and try and get everything, because wow. I'd be happy. Well, and write down all of the other questions that come from listening to this over again. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, And certainly if any of our listeners have questions, put those in the comments on our website, stgcast.org. And, you know, if nothing else, we'll use those for jumping off point the next time we get a chance to talk to Sarah. So, wow. Yeah, thank you again. Uh, I think this is where we're going to have to wrap this up, but from all of us here at Saving the Game, have a good one, take it easy. We'll catch you next time. See ya. And as promised, folks, here's the scripture to meditate on for this week. Our first bit of scripture is from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. 
The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Second, we have Proverbs chapter 16, verse 3. Commit your actions to the Lord, and your plans will succeed. And finally, we have from the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke chapter 12, verse 2. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.